Good morning, you're listening to WTUL New Orleans News and Views. Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, a typically temperate Donald Trump decried what he called horrible and politically charged decisions coming out of the Supreme Court as shotgun blasts into the face of people that are proud to call themselves Republicans or conservatives. Trump meant, of course, the ruling stopping his administration, for now, from ending DACA, the program protecting hundreds of thousands of young immigrants from deportation. And maybe even more so, the historic ruling from earlier in the week, declaring that Title VII of the landmark Civil Rights Act of 1964 does, in fact, make it illegal for employers to discriminate against a worker because of their sexual orientation or their transgender status. That 6-3 to decision surprised and elated many. We'll talk about how we got here and what it means going forward with civil rights attorney Ezra Young, whose litigation and scholarship center on trans rights. That's coming up, but first we'll take a look back at some recent press. As police violence against black people and those who would rise in their defense forces a national engagement of a sort with the reality of white supremacy in our institutions, the widening recognition that the batons and tear gas are just one part of it, that there's more than one way to choke the life out of a people, meant that it was just a matter of time before news media would need to acknowledge the call coming from inside the House. So we have the week just passed wherein we learned that numerous powerful media figures have not just tweeted, joked, or dressed up as, but have enforced policies and practices and pay differentials that, deep breath, do not reflect the values they now hold. They now understand to be deeply hurtful. They only wish they'd been alerted to sooner. They are taking time to reflect deeply upon. They are committed to doing better about going forward. They look forward to being challenged on, and about which, heaven only knows, they are listening. Journalism is a public service, but media outlets are institutions, in many ways like many others in this country. They have hierarchies and unspoken rules and power plays and anti-black racism. It's just that white supremacy and the outlets we rely on to show us the world has especially resounding repercussions. When you see Amazon, for example, saying they stand in solidarity with the black community, it's easy to recognize that for a gesture, an effort to wave off criticism without taking seriously the actually truly challenging work of interrogating the role that structural and interpersonal racism play in their workplace and their field. Translated into journalism... That surface-skimming effort looks something like the AP's June 10th rendering of the situation. Quote, headline-making missteps put focus on newsroom diversity, close quote. The New York Times told readers and all the other media that take their lead from the paper to listen respectfully to a call for the U.S. military to take to the streets against black people. The paper did not merely accept, but solicited the piece, send in the troops, from Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton. When black staffers said amplifying that call put them in danger, the editorial page editor first said essentially all viewpoints matter, then admitted he hadn't even read it. Calling that a misstep, as though the paper were going somewhere good but got a tiny bit off track, is not describing but compounding the harm. Defining the missteps as headline-making shows a certain self-regard, as if if media didn't notice media messing up, media wouldn't be messing up. Put focus on is more of the same. Who's focus? The black and brown staffers complaining aren't saying anything they haven't said before and been rebuffed over. So if this focus is new, why is that? And who's in charge of when it stops? Alexis Johnson, black reporter at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, 
was barred from covering the protests because she tweeted photos of horrifying scenes and aftermath from selfish looters before revealing that the images were actually pictures from a Kenny Chesney concert tailgate. Johnson was told that after this commentary, her or any colleagues who tweeted support for her covering the George Floyd uprising might cause the credibility of the newsroom to be questioned. AP tells readers, quote, Johnson ran afoul of rules that discourage journalists from being publicly opinionated on social media posts and elsewhere, close quote. But it didn't note that the Post-Gazette's white editor runs the newsroom while also writing opinion columns, including one defending Trump's attack on whole countries and another that called feminism a step back toward barbarism. What does that mean for the paper's pretenses around credibility? Well, AP doesn't ask because diversity doesn't require it to go that deep, just to include a quote from Johnson. And about that diversity, AP's definition of the problem revealed by the Times calling for military assaults on citizens and the Post-Gazette banning black reporters from covering the story of the day and the Philadelphia Inquirer running the headline, Buildings Matter Too, and on and on, is, quote, news media's sluggishness in building diverse newsrooms, close quote. And it cites the 1968 Kerner Commission, formerly the report of the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders, which indicted news media, along with police and politicians, for their role in driving the racial divisions that roiled the country. Shockingly backward, AP reminds us, is how the Kerner Report described U.S. journalism's record of hiring and promoting African Americans. Well, the report did call for hiring more black people, and a number of great reporters got their breaks in the wake of it reporting not just on urban unrest, but on everyday life in communities of color, filling a void left by a press corps that Kerner charged, quote, acts and talks about Negroes as if Negroes do not read the newspapers and watch television, give birth, marry, die, and go to PTA meetings, close quote. But that hiring flagged. African-Americans were just 2% of newspaper employees in 1978, few in decision-making roles, and two-thirds of the nation's papers had no employees of color at all, according to a survey by the American Society of Newspaper Editors. The group called for the reignition of Kerner's demands, setting a goal of minority employment in newspapers equal to their proportion of the country's population by the year 2000. By 1998, it was clear this was nowhere close to happening. Black people were 13.3% of the population and still just 5.4% of newsroom employees. So they pushed the goal back to 2025. In 2017, the group found just 5.6% of newsroom employees were black and 4.6% of newsroom leaders. The group's statement the following year on Kerner's 50th anniversary acknowledged that their goal wasn't met or anything like it, adding, quote, but diversity is now part of industry language, close quote. But that's just it. The Kerner Report didn't call for diversity. It called for U.S. journalism to decenter its white male view. Media, quote, report and write from the standpoint of a white man's world, close quote. Coverage, quote, reflects the biases, the paternalism, the indifference of white America, close quote. And the report said, this isn't just lamentable, it's, quote, not excusable in an institution that has the mission to inform and educate the whole of our society, close quote. For Kerner, the meaningful representation of black people in editorial roles wasn't a sop or a nice thing to do, but a core value. Inclusion was crucial as a means toward an end which was media that would, quote, meet the Negroes' legitimate expectations in journalism, close quote. Can you hear the difference between that and 52 years later, AP's anodyne statement, quote, a failure to include journalists of many different backgrounds means missing stories, close quote. In the apology to readers and staffers, 
about the headlines suggesting an equivalence between the loss of buildings and the lives of black Americans, Philadelphia Inquirer editors stated, quote, We also know that an apology on its own is not sufficient, close quote. What would be sufficient? Well, that's an important conversation. But a start would be for media to stop saying missteps when they mean sustained systemic failures and to get it through their heads that the demand is not for more diversity but for less white supremacy. Journalists ought to speak plainly, including when they're talking to themselves. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. The Supreme Court ruled this week that Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act protects people from job discrimination based on sexual orientation or identity. In other words, it is illegal for employers to discriminate against a worker because of their sexual orientation or their transgender status. That might sound like basic fairness, but the ruling was reported as a surprise given the court's conservative majority. So how did it happen, and how far-reaching are the repercussions? Ezra Young is a civil rights attorney whose litigation and scholarship center on trans rights. He joins us now by phone from Brooklyn. Welcome to Counterspin, Ezra Young. Hi, thanks for having me, Janine. Well, we'll talk about arguments and impact, but first I wondered, what was just your initial professional and or personal reaction to the court's ruling on Monday? Personally and professionally, I felt vindicated for several reasons. Personally, I'm transgender, I'm also bisexual, and this is obviously a landmark opinion. It affirms that generally applicable non-discrimination laws protect everyone, including unpopular groups, including the specific instance LGBT people, and we're not going to read extra textual exceptions into them. That's huge. That's tremendous. And as you said, Janine, for this court in particular, it's somewhat surprising that they would come down on the side of the test. Professionally, I've worked the last eight years of my life pretty narrowly on sex discrimination laws, specifically as to transgender people litigating and writing about why these laws do protect transgender people in a lot of different instances. And most of my cases have been Title VII cases. So this is a great thing to say. Well, listeners will know that this was two sets of cases, uh, two suits from gay men who had been fired because of that, Bostock and Zarda, and then Harris Funeral Homes versus EEOC, which was the gender identity case brought by Amy Stevens, who was fired when she told her employer that she was transitioning. So what, simply put, was the argument that the court wound up supporting six to three? Sensibly, in the opinion written by Justice Gorsuch, simply says that the court is going to read the statute as written. The statute says employers may not discriminate on account of a number of different statuses. One of them is sex. It doesn't really say what sex is. There are a few examples, many of which pertain to pregnancy discrimination because of other cases. But literally, it just says whatever sex discrimination is, it's prohibited in employment. So most of Justice Gorsuch's opinion tries to reason out how they could figure out what Congress meant or didn't meant in 1964. And a good chunk of the opinion goes into what I think is very important, both in this case and other cases, how we cannot import old historical biases that may have existed when the statute was passed and read those into a statute if Congress didn't write them in, meaning maybe Congress didn't like transgender people or gay people or lesbians or bisexuals in 1964. That's probably true as to individual members of Congress. But because they didn't write in that exception to the statute in express words, that can't carry the day. We have to just read the statute as written. Well, not to say I told you so, but you did kind of tell us so, actually. Uh, Remembering that we are lay people, what led you to say in your California Law Review piece in March that if Harris, that's Amy Stevens' case, were to be one, that it would come down to that textual reading that you've just described, saying we're not talking about intent, we're talking about the words on the page, and that it would come down to Gorsuch. This is something that a lot of legal scholars and lay people equally have gotten wrong for a very long time. When I mean a long time, I mean basically for the last 40 to 50 years. 
a lot of people have assumed that ideologically conservative judges and justices would be against recognizing protection for transgender people as well as LGB people under Title VII. But actually in the court decisions since the 1970s, since these cases first started coming up, it's actually been the ideological conservative judges who have pushed the idea that LGBT people are protected, which sounds baffling, right? I realize that. <laughs> so the first circuit case to go up uh, in the 1970s in the Ninth Circuit, which is known for being a fairly uh, liberal jurisdiction, actually it was the two liberal judges on that panel who said that the transgender person wasn't protected. It was a Nixon appointee, Judge Goodwin, who is not liberal by any means, who wrote a pretty lengthy dissent. The language is a little bit wonky because it's from the 1970s, but more or less tracks what Justice Gorsuch wrote in his opinion just a few days ago. More or less just says there's no exception here. We have to read the text as written. This might be weird. This might scare us. This might be odd to some people, but those are fact issues, and those aren't really relevant to what the law says. And again and again and again, very, very conservative judges. Another example is Judge Pryor from the 11th Circuit, also very, very conservative, have come out in favor of transgender people. Now, Justice Gorsuch in particular overlooked at the time he was nominated by many people. Justice Gorsuch, then Judge Gorsuch, in 2009 in a Ninth Circuit opinion, he sat by designation because there was a gap in a panel, sat on a case much like Harris with a transgender woman who was fired for being a transgender woman. And though that opinion is curatorium, which means no judge signed their name to it, sometimes that just happens, mm -hmm. doesn't really mean anything. But that opinion was written in a tone that looks like Justice Gorsuch and more or less came to the same reason that he came this week in Bostock. There's no exception to transgender coverage. It doesn't say that in the text, so we're not going to find an exception. Pretty, pretty big thing in 2009. My thinking was if he was willing to go that far in 2009, which I think was the right decision, I don't see why in 2020 he'd go back on that. If nothing, he, he's pretty principled. He sticks to his guns. I don't always agree with him on a variety of issues, but he, he doesn't just flip-flop on case to case. So that, that's much of what I guess went into my reasoning. Well, maybe it's worth spelling out what we're talking about when we talk about the plain textual reading of, of Title VII of sex discrimination. The, the court seemed to be saying, well, if you're trying to discriminate against a lesbian, you would say, well, she's dating a woman. Well, if she were a man, would that be a problem? Well, no. Well, then it's sex discrimination. I mean, it really is kind of straight along those straight. Uh, um, it, it really is <laughs> along yeah. that line, that simple, essentially. Yeah, essentially. And the vast majority of courts to ever hear these cases have come out in that way. And that's something else that's sort of a lost history of Title VII litigation. This might be a political football right now. Well, maybe no longer after Monday. But for decades and decades and decades, the vast majority of judges to hear these cases, regardless of what party appointed them, regardless of their you know personal beliefs and religious affiliations, any of those things, the vast majority of judges thought this way. This is not a controversial stance legally. Well, the Washington Post's Jennifer Rubin wrote that this ruling reminds us that, quote, while we might be slow in getting there and are diverted time and again, Americans can eventually be prevailed upon to come down on the side of fairness, equality, inclusion, and simple human decency, close quote. Well, that sounds nice and everything, but it makes it sound as though the expansion of civil rights is like water running downhill, you know, uh, with the implication that we can do something other than fight tooth and nail every every day for it. What do you make of that? Well, I think that's one way to look at it maybe a century from now <laughs> when it does seem so obvious, when we haven't actually lived the day-to-day -day struggles of what it took to get this opinion, right? This took decades upon decades of scholars, of workers, everyday workers standing up from the right, lawyers like me putting their livelihoods on the line to try to push this forward, plus a lot of luck, having to see a conservative justice who was willing to stick to their guns on this issue and was able to speak to his, his colleague, at least Justice Roberts to get him to side on the right side, right? It, it took all of these things. It took a lot of luck, to be frank, on top of a lot of hard work, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. I mean, I think it's good to look at it as this is an American value now, that we do the right thing and we read laws the way that they should, and we don't try to diminish Congress's intent by our own prejudices. 
But and this is, as you suggested, Janine, a huge part of the story, a huge part of the struggle. And the many hundreds of thousands of lives that were sacrificed to get it, to be quite honest, of the three cases that went to the Supreme Court, two of these plaintiffs died waiting. Amy Stevens died just last month in May waiting for this decision. She never got to see it. Right. We don't want to erase that. Well, and, and just as with having to argue that Black Lives Matter, you know, for Pete's sake, I have seen a few folks saying, you know, of course I'm relieved, but how excited do you want me to get that having had to litigate my humanity, you know, I won, you know, mm-hmm. um, but also not to put too fine a point on it. There are still plenty of places and plenty of ways to discriminate against trans people in particular. Yeah, and we might in the years to come see inroads there. I know some people critique Justice Gorsuch's opinion as being kind of dry, because it is. It's not like an opinion by Justice Kennedy. Some people might remember uh, their burger fell, the big marriage equality decision in 2015. A lot of gay people, a lot of gay friends I know, when they got married after that decision, they write excerpts of the opinion at their ceremony because it was flowery. It was beautiful. It talked about equal dignity and those sorts of things. That's not Justice Gorsuch's style, right? Um, but from a legal point of view, Justice Gorsuch's opinion might be useful trying to talk to other conservative judges, you know, at the state and federal level, about how we read other laws, that you're literally not allowed to read transgender people out of protection just because you dislike them or just because you're scared of transgender people. So in that way, it might prove particularly useful that obviously, you know, the struggle will keep going, but there will be more cases that will be pushed back. Well, a question, a specific question that I know a lot of people have, what does this Supreme Court ruling mean for the HHS move that came just in advance of it that was eliminating protections against anti-trans discrimination, also that against women seeking abortions in healthcare? Does this ruling connect with that? Yes, I think it does. So the HHS regulation is basically based upon not to get into like the details of how the statutory regime works, but basically a very similar law that generally bans discrimination on the basis of sex. Under the Obama administration, there had been a regulation in the healthcare context that basically said whatever sex discrimination is in healthcare, it most definitely includes discrimination against transgender people trying to seek certain types of healthcare, as well as persons who have had abortions who are discriminated against because they have had abortions, because the experience of having had an abortion has a direct link to one's sex. So it's very likely, based upon the Bostock decision, which is one of the first big just decisions about what sex discrimination does and doesn't mean in a very long time outside of the LGBT context, it's very likely, I think, based on Bostock, the HHS regulation that was released last Friday is just dead in the water. It has a very, it embraced a very, very cramped view of sex discrimination that Justice Gorsuch's opinion just totally eviscerates. And uh, Justice Alito's dissent in Bostock sort of admits as much, saying that all of these things in healthcare and a variety of other areas, those limits no longer exist. They can't under Bostock. Well, the case that the court looked at does cover the workplace, and the workplace is only mm-hmm. one arena in which we live. And we do want to be mindful of what uh, writer Dorothy Benz calls Swiss cheese civil rights. You know, you can have be protected in one arena and then suddenly not. But the workplace is a huge place to start and does have or could have a bigger meaning, right? If it if it if it means, for example, that more trans people can get into the workforce. So this really it really is big. It's really big. And beyond that, I would say if it were any other civil rights statute, I might agree with the possibility of the Swiss cheese rights problem. But Title VII in American law is tremendously important. The vast majority of federal and state courts, when they're interpreting federal or state laws about sex discrimination in any area of law, defer to how the Supreme Court reads Title VII, because Title VII is just sort of the end all and be all of what sex discrimination is. So it is more likely than not, in my opinion, that this reverberates throughout all sorts of sex discrimination laws, so far beyond the workplace. Well, finally, there are a couple of prevalent media frames that I've noticed that they're not wrong, but I find them limiting. One is reading the Supreme Court's ruling 
as a rebuke to the White House, you know, which of course it is, but we know, of course, it's bigger than just, you know, anti-Trumpism. It extends before him and beyond him. And then there's the, you know, it's a victory for liberals. Like, okay, you won this round, people who believe in human rights, you know, but but we're coming back for you. And even the really well-meaning, it's a victory for LGBTQ people, which... Of course it is. And I know I sound like a like a language prig, but I, I just think, why not say a victory for fairness? Why not say a victory for a healthier society? I'm just wondering what your thoughts are about the way media come at this set of issues generally. If there's anything you'd like to see more of or less of, what about that piece of it? I think one line of messaging that is being missed right now, and it's perhaps the least sexy pun intended of what one can say is, if nothing else, this is a victory for all of those things, but it's also a tremendous victory for textualism, which is the School of Statutory Interpretation, Justice Gorsuch, and the late Justice Scalia led with. This is showing that textualism can allow progressive pro-LGBT outcomes to occur. And I think we're going to see a divide on the conservative side about that, because for a long time, legal conservatives have been saying, well, of course, that's possible. It's just it just so happens we never support those outcomes. Mm -hmm. But this is a case that shows that, you know, maybe there's a way that conservatives and liberals, conservatives and progressives can speak to each other sanely about the same issues and come out to the same outcome, even if we speak about these issues differently. I know for some people it bothers them that there's not a lot of dignity and sort of happiness from Justice Gorsuch's opinion. I think at the end of the day, for a lot of poor trans folks, poor gay folks, many of folks who are people of color, too, who are just struggling, trying to make ends meet, that want jobs, they don't really care what the opinion says. They care that they have rights. And this is how they got it. And I think maybe it's just dark 2020 times right now, but that in itself, that's a gift, however we get it. We've been speaking with civil rights attorney Ezra Young. You can follow his work at EzraYoung.com. Thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Ezra Young. Thank you so much. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, fair.org. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you for listening to Counterspin. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report, The Quarantine Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As the nationwide uprising against police brutality and racism continues to roil the nation and the world, bringing down Confederate statues and forcing a reckoning in city halls and on the streets, President Trump defended law enforcement Thursday, dismissing growing calls to defund the police. He spoke at a campaign-style event at a church in Dallas, Texas, announcing a new executive order advising police departments to adopt national standards for use of force. Trump did not invite the top three law enforcement officials in Dallas, who are all African-American. The move comes after Trump called protesters thugs and threatened to deploy the U.S. military to end, quote, riots and lawlessness. This is Trump speaking Thursday. They want to get rid of the police forces. They actually want to get rid of it. And that's what they do, and that's where they'd go. And you know that, because at the top position, there's not going to be much leadership. There's not much leadership left. Instead, we have to go the opposite way. We must invest more energy and resources in police training and recruiting and community engagement. We have to respect our police. We have to take care of our police. They're protecting us. And if they're allowed to do their job, they'll do a great job. And you always have a bad apple no matter where you go. You have bad apples. 
And uh, there are not too many of them. And I can tell you, there are not too many of them in the police department. We all know a lot of members of the police. Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden is also calling for an increase to police funding. In an op-ed in USA Today, he called for police departments to receive an additional $300 million to, quote, reinvigorate community policing in our country. On Wednesday night, Biden discussed police funding on The Daily Show. I don't believe police should be defunded, but I think the conditions should be placed upon them where departments are having to take significant reforms. Relating to that, we should set up a national use of force standard. But many argue reform will not fix the inherently racist system of policing. Since the global protest movement began, Minneapolis has pledged to dismantle its police department. The mayors of Los Angeles and New York City have promised to slash police department budgets, and calls to defund the police are being heard in spaces that would have been unthinkable just a few weeks ago. Well, for more on this historic moment, we are spending the hour with the legendary activist and scholar Angela Davis, professor emerita at the University of California, Santa Cruz. For half a century, Angela Davis has been one of the most influential activists and intellectuals in the United States, an icon of the black liberation movement. Angela Davis's work around issues of gender, race, class and prisons has influenced critical thought and social movements across several generations. She's a leading advocate for prison abolition, a position informed by her own experience as a prisoner and a fugitive on the FBI's top 10 wanted list more than 40 years ago. Once caught, she faced the death penalty in California. After being acquitted on all charges, she spent her life fighting to change the criminal justice system. Angela Davis, welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us today for the hour. Thank you very much, Amy. It's wonderful to be here. Well, do you think this moment is a tipping point, a turning point? You, who have been involved in activism for almost half a century, do you see this moment as different, perhaps more different than any period of time you have lived through? Absolutely. This is uh, an extraordinary moment. I've never experienced uh, anything like the conditions we are currently experiencing. Um, the conjuncture created by the COVID-19 uh, pandemic and the recognition of the systemic racism that had that has been rendered visible under uh, uh, these uh, conditions because of the disproportionate deaths in Black and Latinx communities. And this is a moment I don't know whether I ever expected to experience. Um, when the protests began, of course, around the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud uh, Aubrey and Tony McDade and many others who've lost their lives to racist state violence um, and vigilante violence. Um, when these protests erupted, I remembered something that I've uh, said uh, many uh, times to encourage activists who often feel that the work that they do is not leading to tangible results. Um, I often ask them to consider the very long trajectory of black struggles, and, and what has been most important is the forging of legacies and new arenas of struggle that can be handed down to younger generations. But I've often said one never knows when conditions may give rise to a conjuncture such as the current one. Um, that rapidly shifts popular consciousness and suddenly allows us to move in the direction of radical change. If one does not engage in the ongoing work, when such a moment arises, we cannot take advantage of the opportunities uh, to uh, change. Um, and of course, this moment will pass. The intensity of the current demonstrations cannot be sustained over time, uh, but we will have to be ready to shift gears and address these issues in different arenas, including, of course, the electoral arena. 
Angela Davis, you've more, long been a leader of the critical resistance movement, um, the abolition movement. And I'm wondering if you can explain the demand as you see it, what you feel needs to be done around defunding the police and then around prison abolition. Well, the call to defund the police is, I think, an abolitionist uh, demand. But it reflects only one aspect of uh, the process represented by uh, the demand. Defunding the police is not simply about withdrawing funding for law enforcement and doing nothing else. And it appears as if uh, this is uh, the, 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 the rather superficial understanding uh, that has caused um, Biden to move in the direction he's moving in. It's about shifting public funds to new services and and, and new institutions, uh, mental health counselors uh, who um, can respond to people who are in crisis without arms. Uh, it's about shifting funding to education, to housing, to recreation. Uh, all of these things help to create security and safety. Um, it's about learning that safety, safeguarded by violence, is not really safety. And I would say that abolition is not primarily a negative strategy. It's not primarily about dismantling, getting rid of, but it's about re-envisioning. It's about building anew. And I would argue that abolition is a feminist uh, strategy, uh, and one sees in these abolitionist demands that are, are emerging the pivotal influence of, of feminist uh, theories and practices. Explain that further. Um, well, I want us to see feminism not only as addressing um, issues of gender, uh, but rather as a methodological approach uh, of, of understanding the intersectionality of, 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 of struggles uh, and, 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 and issues. Uh, um, abolition feminism counters carceral feminism, which has unfortunately assumed that issues such as violence against women can be effectively addressed by um, using police force, by, uh, by, 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 by using imprisonment as a solution. And of course, we know that uh, Joseph Biden in um, 1994, uh, who uh, claims that um, the Violence Against Women Act was such an important moment in his career, uh, the Violence Against Women Act was couched within the 1994 um, uh, Crime Act, uh, the, the Clinton Crime Act. Uh, and what we're calling for is a process of decriminalization, not a recognizing that um, that threats to safety, threats to security come um, not primarily from what is defined as crime, but rather from the failure of, of, of institutions in our country to address issues of health, issues of, of, of violence, education, etc. So abolition is really about rethinking the kind of future we want, the social future, the economic uh, future, the political future. It's about revolution, I would argue. You write in Freedom is a Constant Struggle, neoliberal ideology drives us to focus on individuals, ourselves, individual victims, individual perpetrators. But how is it possible to solve the massive problem of racist state violence by calling upon individual police officers to bear the burden of that history and to assume that by prosecuting them, by exacting our revenge on them, we would have somehow made progress in eradicating racism? So explain what exactly you're demanding? Well, neoliberal logic assumes that the fundamental unit of society is the individual. 
uh, and I would say the abstract individual. Um, uh, according to that logic, black people can combat racism by pulling themselves up by their own individual bootstraps. Uh, um, that logic recognizes, or fails rather, to recognize that there are institutional barriers that cannot be uh, brought down by individual determination. If a black person is materially unable to attend the university, the solution is not affirmative action, they argue, but rather the person simply needs to work harder, get good grades, and do what is necessary in order to acquire the funds to pay for tuition. Neoliberal logic deters us from thinking about the simpler solution, which is free education. I'm thinking about uh, the fact that we have been aware of the, the, the need for these institutional strategies at least since 1935, and of course before, but I'm choosing 1935 because that was the year when W.E.B. Du Bois published his uh, germinal uh, Black Reconstruction in America. Um, and the question was not what should individual black people do, but rather how to reorganize and restructure post-slavery society in order to guarantee the incorporation of those who, have, who had been formerly enslaved. The society could not remain the same or should not have remained the same. Neoliberalism resists change at the individual level. It asks the individual to adapt to conditions of capitalism, to conditions of racism. I wanted to ask you, Angela Davis, about the monuments to racists, colonizers, confederates that are continuing to fall across the United States and around the wo world. In St. Paul, Minnesota, Wednesday, activists with the American Indian Movement tied a rope around a statue of Christopher Columbus and pulled it from its pedestal on the state capitol grounds. The AIM members then held a ceremony over the fallen monument. In Massachusetts, officials said they'll remove a Columbus statue from a park in Boston's North End after it was beheaded by protesters early Wednesday morning. In Richmond, Virginia, protesters toppled a statue of Confederate President Jefferson Davis from Monument Avenue Wednesday night. In the nearby city of Portsmouth, protesters used sledgehammers to destroy a monument to Confederate soldiers. One person sustained a serious injury, was hospitalized after a statue fell on his head. In Washington, Washington, D.C., House Speaker Nancy Pelosi joined other lawmakers demanding the removal of 11 Confederate statues from the National Statuary Hall in the Capitol. Meanwhile, President Trump said he will not even consider renaming U.S. Army bases named after Confederate military officers. There are 10 such bases, all of them in southern states. Uh, Trump tweeted Wednesday, these monumental and very powerful bases have become part of a great American heritage and a history of winning victory and freedom, unquote. Trump's tweet contradicted Defense Secretary Mark Esper and Joint Chiefs of Staff Chair General Mark Milley, who suggested they're open to discussion about renaming the bases. And uh, a Republican committee in the Senate um, just voted to rename uh, these bases, like Benning and Bragg and Hood, that are named for Confederate leaders. Meanwhile, in your hometown of Birmingham, Alabama, Angela, comedian Jermaine Johnson's pleading not guilty to charge of inciting a riot after he urged protesters at a May 31st rally to march on a statue of Charles Lynn, a former officer in the Confederate Navy. Um, did you think you would ever see this? Um, um, you think about Bree Newsom after the horror at uh, Mother Emanuel uh, Church in Charleston, South Carolina, who shimmied up that um, flagpole on the grounds of the South Carolina legislature and took down the Confederate flag, and they put it right on back up. What about what we're seeing today? Uh, well, of course, Bree Newsom was a, was a wonderful um, pioneer, and I think it's important to link uh, this trend to uh, the campaign in South Africa, uh, roads must fall. Um, and of course, 
I think this uh, reflects the extent to which we are being called upon to deeply reflect on the a role of, 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 of historical racisms that have brought us uh, to the point where we are today. Um, you know, racism, uh, racism should have been immediately confronted in the aftermath of, of the end of slavery. This is what Dr. Uh, du Bois's uh, analysis was all about. Uh, not so much in terms of, well, what are we going to do about these uh, poor people who have been enslaved so many generations, but rather, how can we reorganize the, our society in order to guarantee the incorporation of previously enslaved people? Now, um, the attention is being turned towards the symbols uh, of slavery, the symbols of of, of colonialism, um, and of course, uh, any campaigns against racism in this country have to address in the very first place the uh, conditions of indigenous people. Um, uh, I think it's important that we're seeing these uh, demonstrations, but I think at the same time, we have to recognize that we cannot simply get rid of the history. Uh, we have to recognize the devastatingly negative role that that history has played in charting uh, 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 the, the trajectory of the United States of America. Um, and, and so I think that, that these assaults on statues represent an attempt to uh, begin to think through what we have to do to bring down institutions and re-envision them, uh, reorganize them, create um, new institutions that can attend to uh, the needs of all people. And what do you think should be done with statues, for example, to, oh, slaveholding founding fathers like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson? You know, museums can play an important educational role. And I, I don't think we should get rid of all of the vestiges of the past, but we need to figure out context within which people can uh, understand the, 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 the nature of U.S. history and the, the, the role that racism and capitalism and heteropatriarchy have played in forging that history. Can you talk about racism and capitalism? You often write and speak about how they are intimately connected and talk about a world that you envision. Yeah, racism is integrally linked to capitalism. Uh, and, and I think it's a mistake to assume that we can combat racism by leaving capitalism in place. Um, as Cedric Robinson uh, pointed out in his book, Black Marxism, Capitalism is racial capitalism. Uh, um, and, of course, to just say for a moment uh, that uh, Marx pointed out um, that what he called primitive accumulation, um, um, capital doesn't just appear from nowhere. The original capital was provided by the labor of slaves. The Industrial Revolution, which pivoted around the production of capital, was enabled by slave labor in the U.S. So I am convinced that the ultimate eradication of racism is going to require us to move toward a more socialist organization of our economies, uh, of our other institutions. I think we have a long way to go before we can begin to talk about an economic system that is not based on exploitation and on the super-exploitation of, of Black people, Latinx people, and other racialized populations. Um, but I do think that we now have the conceptual means to engage in discussions, popular discussions, about Capitalism. Occupy gave us new language. Uh, the notion of the prison industrial complex requires us to understand the globalization of capitalism. Uh, anti capitalist consciousness helps us to understand the predicament of immigrants who are barred from the U.S. by the wall that has been created by the 
current occupant. Um, these conditions have been created by global capitalism. And I think this is a period during which we need to begin that process of popular education, which uh, will allow people to understand uh, the internet interconnections of racism, heteropatriarchy, capitalism. Angela, do you think we need a Truth and Reconciliation Commission here in this country? Well, that might be, you know, one way to begin, but I know we're going to need a lot more than truth and reconciliation, but certainly we need truth. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure how soon reconciliation is going to emerge, um, but I think that, that the whole notion of truth and reconciliation allows us to think differently about the, um, about the criminal legal system. It allows us to imagine a form of justice that is not um, based on revenge, a form of justice that is not retributive. Uh, so I think that those those ideas can help us begin to imagine um, new ways of structuring our um, institutions, uh, uh, such as, um, well, not structuring the prison, because uh, the, the, the whole point is that we have to abolish that institution in order to begin to envision new uh, ways of addressing the conditions uh, uh, that uh, lead to mass incarceration, that lead to uh, such uh, horrendous tragedies as the murder of George Floyd. We're going to come back to this discussion and also talk about President Trump going to Tulsa on Juneteenth. We're speaking with Angela Davis, the world-renowned abolitionist, author, activist, and professor emerita at University of California, Santa Cruz, author of many books, including Freedom is a Constant Struggle. Stay with us. by Philistine. This is Democracy Now!, The Quarantine Report. I'm Amy Goodman, as we spend the hour with the legendary activist scholar Angela Davis, professor emerita at University of California, Santa Cruz. President Trump has announced he's holding his first campaign rally since the quarantine, since lockdowns across the country, since the pandemic. He's holding it in Tulsa, Oklahoma, on June 19th a highly symbolic day. It was June 19, 1865, that enslaved Africans in Texas first learned they were free, two years after Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. The day is now celebrated as Juneteenth. California Senator Kamala Harris tweeted in response, this isn't just a wink to white supremacists, he's throwing them a welcome home party, unquote. Well, Tulsa recently marked the 99th anniversary of one of the deadliest mass killings of African Americans in U.S. history. In 1921, a white mob killed as many as 300 people, most of them black, after a black man was accused of assaulting a white woman. The white mobs destroyed a thriving African American business district known at the time as the Black Wall Street of America. Well, this all comes as a Tulsa police major is coming under fire after denying systemic racism in the police force there and saying African-Americans probably should be shot more. Listen carefully. This is Major Travis Yates in an interview with KFAQ. 
if a certain group is committing more crimes, more violent crimes, then that number's going to be higher. Well, who in the world in the right mind would think that our shootings should be right along the U.S. census line? All of their research says we're shooting African-Americans about 24% less than we probably ought to be based on the crimes being committed. We're shooting them, we're shooting them less than they probably ought to be? Tulsa's mayor and police chief have both blasted Yates for the comment, but he remains on the force. And on Friday, President Trump will be there. Angela Davis, your thoughts on the, the, the significance of the moment, the place? Uh, well, that's, um, well, I, I, you know, I can't even respond to anything he does anymore. It's just so, 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 so ridiculous. Uh, uh, and uh, um, it is, however, um, important to recognize that um, that he represents a, a sector of the population in this country that wants to return to the past, uh, uh, make America great again. Uh, uh, with with all of its uh, white supremacy, uh, uh, with all of its misogyny, uh, and uh, I think that uh, th at this moment we are recognizing that we cannot be held back by such forces as those represented by the the current um, uh, occupant of uh, of the White House. Uh, um, I doubt very seriously whether the the people who come out to hear him in Tulsa uh, at this his, on this historic day, of course, all over the the country, um, people of African descent will be observing Juneteenth as a as a mat, as an emancipatory moment in our our history. Uh, um, but. Um, I think that 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 our role is to start to begin to translate some of the energy and passion into transforming institutions. Uh, uh, the process has already begun, and it's not it, it can't be turned back, at least not by the current occupant of the the White House. I'm not suggesting that it's easy to create lasting change, but at least now we can see that it is possible. Uh, when when someone like Roger Goodell says Black Lives Matter, even though he did not mention um, Colin Kaepernick, and even though he may have he probably didn't really mean it. What that means is that um, um, the NFL recognizes that it has to begin a new process. Uh, that there is a further expansion of of popular consciousness. Um, and in New York, of course, you need to ask whether you really want to create new jails in the boroughs in the aftermath of closing Rikers, or whether you need new services. Um, you know, I've been thinking about the case of, 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 of Jussie Smollett, and I'm wondering why in Chicago, given the conditions surrounding the murder of Laquan McDonald, the police um, department uh, should be thoroughly investigated. And we need to ask, how is it that the public could so easily be rallied to the police narrative of what happened in, in, in the case of uh, Jesse uh, Smollett? So there is so much to be done. And I think that uh, the, the rallies that the current occupant of the White House is holding will uh, fade in, into uh, don't even merit uh, footnotes in history. Angela Davis, I wanted to ask you about another event that's taken place on Juneteenth, on June 19th. And the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute is finally going to issue the Fred L. Shuttlesworth Award during a virtual event on Juneteenth. And I wanted to ask you about this, because you returned to your hometown of Birmingham, Alabama, last February, after the Institute had at first rescinded the award due to your support for BDS, Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions Movement, and your support of Palestine. Uh, after outcry, the Institute reversed its decision. More than 3,000 people gathered to see you talk at an alternative event to honor you, which was hosted by the Birmingham Committee for Truth and Reconciliation. This is a clip of your comments that day. It became clear to me that uh, this might actually be a teachable moment. Yes. 
that we might seize this moment uh, to uh, reflect on what it means to live on this planet in the 21st century and our responsibilities not only to people in our immediate community mm -hmm. but to people all over the planet. We were there covering this amazing moment where the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute had rescinded um, the award to you, the Fred L. Shuttlesworth Award, went through enormous turmoil. Uh, the mayor of Birmingham, so many people across the spectrum uh, criticized them for it. But then this process happened, and you are going to be awarded this. Can you talk about the significance of this moment and what you plan to say on Juneteenth, the day that President Trump will be in Tulsa. Well, um, thank you for reminding me that these two events are happening on the same uh, day. Um, and of course, uh, that was, um, I think, the last time I actually saw you in person, Amy, uh, in Birmingham. Uh, uh, a lot has happened over the last period, including um, within the context of the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. Um, uh, they have completely reorganized. They have reorganized their board. They have been involved in conversations uh, with uh, the community. Of course, uh, as, as you know, the, the mayor of Birmingham was threatening to withdraw funding from the institute. Uh, uh, there was a generalized uprising in the black community. Uh, and, you know, while at first it was a total shock to me that they offered this award to me and then they rescinded it, uh, I'm realizing now that that was a, an important moment uh, uh, because it encouraged people to think about the meaning of human rights. And why is it that Palestinians could be excluded from the process of working uh, uh, toward human rights? Um, now, Palestinian activists have long supported black people's struggle against racism. Uh, when I was in jail, solidarity coming from Palestine was a major source of courage for me. In Ferguson, Palestinians were the first to express international solidarity. Uh, and and um, uh, there has been this, um, this, this very important connection between the two struggles for many decades. Uh, so that uh, I'm going to be um, really um, happy to receive the award, which now represents a rethinking of the rather backward position that the Institute assumed uh, that uh, Palestinians could be excluded from the circle of those working uh, toward a, a future of justice, equality, and human rights. Speaking about what's going on in the West Bank right now and about the whole issue of international solidarity, um, the global response to the killing of George Floyd. Um, in the occupied West Bank, protesters denounced Floyd's murder and the recent killing of Iyad el-Halak, a 32-year-old Palestinian special needs student who was shot to death by Israeli forces in occupied East Jerusalem. He was reportedly chanting Black Lives Matter and Palestinian Lives Matter um, when Israeli police gunned him down, claiming he was armed. Um, these links that you're seeing, not only in Palestine and the United States, but around the world, the kind of global response, the tens of thousands of people people who marched in Spain, um, who marched in England, in Berlin, in Munich, all over the world, as this touches a chord and they make demands in their own countries, not only in solidarity with what's happening in the United States. And then I want to ask you about the U.S. election uh, that's coming up in November. Well, um, yes, Palestinian activists have—, have, have long supported black people's struggle against racism, as, as, I, as I pointed out. Uh, and uh, I, 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 I'm hoping that today's young activists recognize how important Palestinian solidarity has been to the, the, the black cause, and they, that they recognize that we have a profound responsibility to support Palestinian struggles as well. Um, uh, I think it's also important for us to look in the direction of, of Brazil. Uh, 
uh, whose current um, political leader um, competes with our current political leader uh, in um, uh, many uh, um, uh, dangerous ways, I would say. Uh, Brazil, if we think we have a problem with racist police violence in the United States of America, look at uh, Brazil. Uh, uh, Marielle Franco was assassinated because she was challenging the militarization of the police and the racist violence uh, unleashed uh, there. I think 4,000 people were killed last year alone by the police in, in Brazil. So I, I'm saying this because and, of course, uh, the president of Brazil, a close ally um, of President Trump. We only have two minutes, and I want to get to the election. When I interviewed you in 2016, you said you wouldn't support either main party candidate at the time. What are your thoughts today for 2020? Well, uh, my position really hasn't changed. I'm not going to actually uh, support uh, either of the major candidates, but but I do think we have to participate in the election. And that isn't to say that I won't vote for the Democratic candidate. Uh, what I'm saying is that um, in our electoral system as it exists, neither party represents the future that we need in this country. Both parties remain connected to corporate capitalism. But the election will not so much be about who gets to lead the country to a better future, but rather uh, how we can support ourselves and our own ability to continue to organize and place pressure on those in power. And I, and I, I don't think there's a question about which candidate would allow that process uh, to un unfold. So I, you know, I think that we're going to have to translate some of the passion uh, that has characterized these demonstrations into uh, work within the electoral arena, recognizing that the electoral arena um, is not the best place for the expression of radical politics. Uh, but if we want to continue this work, we certainly need a person in office who will be uh, more amenable to our mass pressure. And to me, that is the only thing that someone like uh, Joe Biden um, represents. But we have to persuade people to go out and vote to guarantee that the current occupant of the White House uh, is forever ousted. Angela Davis, I want to thank you so much for this hour. World-renowned abolitionist, author, activist, professor emerita at the University of California, Santa Cruz, author of many books, including Freedom as a Constant Struggle, Ferguson, Palestine, and the Foundations of Movement. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us. Stay safe.